0: Hey, it's Jen. Just a quick heads up before we start the show. The news is rapidly developing and things may have changed by the time you hear this episode. For the latest news, tune into your public radio station and follow updates at npr.org. This is the 1A Podcast. I'm Jen White and you're listening to the News Roundup. Planes and trains are in the headlines this week. A massive railroad workers' strike that would have brought commerce to a standstill appears to have been averted, at least for now. It's one of many labor actions and threatened labor actions taking place across the country. Meanwhile, Republican governors in Texas and Florida continue to ship migrants to Democratic cities. Their latest target, Martha's Vineyard. But some legal analysts warn this latest stunt may have violated federal law. We'll get into it and get results from the final round of primaries ahead of the midterm elections. Here to help us out is Talu Olurunipa. He's White House Bureau Chief for The Washington Post. Talu, welcome to 1A.
1: It's so great to be with you.
0: Also with us is Eva McKend, a national politics reporter with CNN. Eva, it's always great to have you. Thanks for having me. And Steve Clemens is in studio with me. He's editor at large at the new platform Semaphore, a global news outlet. He's also a contributing editor to The Hill. Steve, it's great to have you. My
2: pleasure, Jen. Great to be with you.
0: So, rail companies and workers have reached a tentative agreement to head off a strike that could cost the U.S. economy billions of dollars a day. President Biden praised the deal on Thursday.
1: With unemployment still near record lows and signs of progress in lowering costs, this agreement allows us to continue to rebuild a better America with an economy that truly works for working people and their families. Today is a win, and I mean it sincerely, a win for America.
0: We got this comment from Joanna on Twitter, who says, The deal is awful. Workers are still not being offered paid time off. Here's hoping they vote it down and strike. Steve, before we get into the details of the deal, what led to this potential strike?
2: What led to the strike was a an arena of stressed out workers dealing with uh, the aftermath and the and and the you know the the process of COVID the you know the uh, uh, supply chain crisis in America where de- demand in this nation surged and supply was limited. We saw President Biden earlier in his administration basically cajoling the transportation industry to work harder, work longer, do more to to, to fill this demand because we had so many problems in the supply chain crisis. So America broadly has been stressed out and overworked and underpaid and underappreciated, if you will. Um, but the rail workers, and you know, I'm sure we're going to uh, at some point talk about teachers and others, but everybody that's out there from the medical industry, the transportation industry has been, is, is fatigued. And I think right now they're basically saying we're, we seem to be coming out part of this. Remember us and value us. And that's what this is about.
0: Eva, what deal, tentative deal, did they uh, eventually reach?
3: Well, workers ultimately won several of the concessions they were seeking, including better pay, reportedly more flexible schedules like time off for medical appointments. And, you know, it it was actually surprising because it seemed like some of the demands that they were making were not all that – were not all that – I mean, pretty standard routine demands. And reportedly, President Biden, uh, in these final hour negotiations, uh, put pressure on these companies, um, you know, saying that these are pretty standard asks that these real workers are asking for. I think this entire episode, though, in the context of other strikes that we've or potential strikes that we've seen, illustrates that we are in a moment in this country where workers are really realizing their collective power especially um, following the or in the wake of the pandemic, that they have the power to stop working and with pretty um, sort of uh, amazing implications, right? If this strike would have went forward, it would have snarled distribution of food, chemicals for water treatment plants, and other goods across the country. So it's sort of a major crisis uh, that seems to have been averted. Lou, how
0: tentative is this tentative deal?
1: Uh, it 's not a done deal it 's not done until the workers actually vote. Now they did have these long negotiations between the top brass in, in these unions and the top brass in, in some of these uh, companies and including uh, you know the top brass from the u s government also weighing in there. but you know having you know the elite uh, from these various institutions agree on something is not the same as having the rank and file the people who have to vote the people who have a voice in this so some of the the, the workers have said they 're confused they 're not exactly sure what they won in this process, what benefits they, they got, how everything will play out, how, how everything will be organized when all of the agreement is said and done. Uh, so it, it, it does remain a, a step that needs to be completed for the the leaders that notched this deal to talk to the rank and file, to convince them that this is a good idea and to get the votes of all of the workers to make sure that you know the strike is not just postponed but actually averted. So we're still waiting for that vote to happen and we're waiting to make sure sure that the rank and file, the workers who have a say in this, are on board fully with what uh, was uh, agreed to in uh, the negotiating room. Steve?
2: Jen, the the other element I think is important to remember right now in terms of this stressed out nation uh, and the financial bottom line that working families are feeling is that this deal we've heard, we learned, is rumored as a 14% increase in basic pay for uh, rail freight workers across the board, a $1,000 bonus at the end of the year, et cetera. But you have to remember that 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 is taking place amidst a very high inflation. Rate in this country. So as we look at these increases and we look at the inflation, where people feel uh, if they're not out there trying to secure greater pay, their realities at home, they're falling behind. They're falling behind in you know gas purchases, you know drug purchases that they need to take care uh, you know of their own health needs and. Uh, putting you know food on the table, so that's that's another element of this. So there is a very important cash element um, that's that's part of this potential deal.
0: But Steve, I wonder if this tentative agreement is going to go to this larger issue of rail workers just being stretched too thin. There have been significant layoffs, tens of thousands of layoffs Huge. in recent years, and so you still don't have enough people. <laughs>
2: well, that's true across almost every major manned. And I would say woman sector uh, uh, in the country, whether it's in education, whether it's in health, workers have made other choices during this or they may have other burdens, child care, other forms of family care, other distractions that, you know, that they may have to deal with. And we do not have – we have a major, major labor shortage in the country. So when I looked at the outlines of this deal, one of the things that came to mind is that, you know, they want to have more power in rescheduling. And, the, and the, these workers are not getting everything they want. I think uh, uh, Ava is correct in that. They're getting a lot but not everything. So by way of scheduling or – look, if you're in a, a, a nurse working in a, in a retirement or elder care facility, if you're a teacher dealing with – you know, we have teachers around the country that are striking over class size. I mean it's one thing to strike for it. But the other thing is where are the, the employees? that are eventually hired to come out there. They are not there right now. So we'll have to see how this comes out in the end. But yes, people are stressed out. They've made other choices and a lot of the workforce is missing, which is why you have this ridiculously interesting gap between a very low unemployment rate in the United States and very high inflation.
0: Well, the Dow saw its worst day in over two years this week. Stocks plunged after inflation rose in August. It wasn't a sharp uptick, but it wasn't expected since we've seen gas prices going down. Eva, what's going on with inflation right now?
3: Well, it it looks like the Fed may have to keep raising interest rates and more aggressively. This was not a great week. Excuse me. This was not a great week on the economy, and Americans will feel the pain um, if interest rates continue to be raised on mortgages and car loans. Uh, Hitting 8.3% was worse than it worse than expected. I think that uh, the Administration, I think, is trying to respond, uh, but uh, they had a bit of bad optics this week when the same day that this was uh, announced, uh, President Biden led a White House celebration of the inflation reduction Act, the right sort of had a field day with sort of this split screen moment of Americans uh, still struggling uh, while President Biden and his allies were sort of uh, celebrating this uh, this legislation at the at the white House
0: tolu how big of an issue is this for the president 's party heading into the midterm elections
1: it 's a huge issue, uh, just as we were talking earlier so many different industries, so many different Americans are impacted by the current state of the economy. And the White House says over and over again that this is the number one domestic priority of President Biden, in part because he realizes that as people go to the grocery stores, as they go to the gas station, as they see prices going up all across the economy, they're not going to really be paying a lot of attention to other positive things that are happening if they can't make ends meet. So they are really trying to, uh, solve this issue, get the gas prices down, celebrate the fact that gas prices have come down significantly over the course of the summer, but also try to address some of these other high prices that we see when it comes to rents, when it comes to groceries, when it comes to a number of different parts of our economy. And it's just a very difficult thing to do. They can't control the Fed. And obviously, if the Fed goes too fast, it may cool the economy and you have the talk of a recession. So it's a very delicate balance that the White House is trying to strike, even as they know that the midterms are coming in a matter of weeks and they don't have a lot of time to convince voters that they are handling this as they should. Uh, so it is a, a point of contention contention uh, in our politics with Republicans uh, accusing Biden of causing the inflation. Biden saying that you know Republicans don't have any solutions and saying that this is something that's happening globally. Well, and, 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 uh, so and, it is a, a messaging stretch, uh, struggle. Well,
0: and that's also an important point to touch on here, Steve. This is a global issue. We're seeing inflation happening around the world. How much control does President Biden really have here?
2: He doesn't have a lot, but um, I think that he has tried by way of the IRA, the Inflation Reduction Act, vis-a-vis Joe Manchin, to balance a few things, you know, which are A a drop in the bucket, but symbolically important, helping to give the government power to negotiate lower drug prices. That is deflationary. Trying to do things that look at the whole energy equation makes some of my friends on the progressive side of the environmental picture upset. But by basically embracing the fact that fossil fuels have to be part of that because there's a global energy crisis, that also deals with bringing that down. But you're right, he doesn't have it. And right now, the stock market is a function of future expectations and many people see higher rates down the road, and that's the way things are, and that's going to mean hardship for all the people we're talking about. The working middle class, uh, if they're middle class, are going to have a tougher time down the road, and that's what the stock market is telling us.
0: We're rounding up some of the week's biggest news. A reminder to have your questions answered on future topics, or just to let us know what you think. Tweet us at 1A We're rounding up some of the week's biggest headlines. Let's get back to the conversation. Before we move on to political news, an update from the sports world. The owner of the Phoenix Suns basketball team has been suspended for a year and fined $10 million by the NBA. That's after an independent investigation found Robert Sarver bullied and demeaned women on his staff. It also found he used the N-word when relaying statements from black people. Several high-level players and the Suns minority owner have demanded Sarver's resignation. Well, two planes carrying about 50 Venezuelan migrants arrived in Martha's Vineyard, Massachusetts this week. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis took credit for the flights. We take what's happening
4: at the southern border very seriously, unlike some and unlike the president of the United States who has refused to lift a finger to secure that border.
0: Democratic Representative Bill Keating's district includes Martha's Vineyard and he's not happy.
5: It's just pure optics, political optics uh, of the uh,
2: most cynical nature. They were using people as political chattel to leverage tax, leveraging taxpayer money for private corporate jets. Lots
0: of you are interested in this story. Catherine says human beings should never be used as pawns, but I think we all have to acknowledge the level of desperation of the governors and of the border states. They are absolutely not being heard nor helped by the Biden administration. But John in Florida says here we go again blaming a president instead of Congress for many years of failing to make and implement policies. Governor DeSantis needs to work with the state's congressional representatives on the importance of getting a comprehensive immigration policy, not this political stunt. And Reva asks, "Why isn't DeSantis guilty of human trafficking? The Justice Department should prosecute him." Well, let's start with the question: Are, are there legal issues circulating around this this ta- this um tactic, Steve? What do you think?
2: Well, I, I I do think there are legal issues, and for me, it it this may sound a little bit uh, you know out of the field, but we saw this happening in Eastern Europe, where a Belarusian President Lukashenko was picking up. Uh, immigrants from Iraq, distressed people and, and, and basically refugees in Iraq and dumping them on the Lithuania border. Uh, and this is exactly the same behavior to create and destabilize the politics of Lithuania. Now I know that's international. But guess what? That is what Florida and Texas are now doing to northern states and to cities that have defined themselves as sanctuary cities. They're, they're working to destabilize the political equilibrium in these, in these places by dumping it. So there, there are very big political ramifications that comes up there. It's strange to see this kind of state versus state rivalry uh, in this way. Eva, your take?
3: Yeah, I think that it's legally dubious. I think we just, we we heard about this woman named Perla that many of these migrants spoke to that reportedly uh, she coaxed them into... Uh, getting on these planes with the promises of job opportunities. So I think there are just a lot of questions, and we're going to learn more uh, in the weeks ahead if if there is any legal liability, potential legal liability for Governor DeSantis. But it seems like the whole episode, really, you know, chaos was the point. The fact that it, it did not seem at all that the folks at Martha's Vineyard Um, were ill-prepared to, or they were ill-prepared, they were caught flat-footed, and that was the point, but they were eager to help these migrants uh, if they would have received notice. And I think this is sort of a latest in a series of moves by Republican governors where the entire sort of um, point is to invite chaos. But when you speak to Republicans, especially uh, in Congress on Capitol Hill, and I have for many years about this issue, there is never sort of seeming to be any um, uh, desire to have a real conversation about immigration reform. Right, The reflexive response is, well, we need to secure the border. And I can't help but think if politically this actually becomes a problem for them, right? If mm. even sort of moderate uh, Republicans sort of see this entire uh, episode and demonstration as cruel and uh, if they it actually comes back to bite them, this um, this political uh, point um, that they are trying to make. Steve, you wanted to get in. Well, it, I yeah. just
2: want to jump on what Ava said and, and say that these, these migrants were allegedly lied to. Uh, and told they were being taken to Boston, a certain city where these people thought. I mean, so that matters when you put people in a, in a, in a bit of transport and you give them, under whatever terms they're going, a certain city and you misdirect them. What if it had been uh, uh, out of the country? What if it been anyway? The idea that someone is not at some point liable and culpable for misdirection for that kind of thing. So we'll have to see how that plays out. But I just wanted to add the element that they were misdirected. These folks thought they were going to end up in a different place.
0: Talu, what does this mean for the migrants themselves these are people seeking asylum
2: yeah
1: it means for many of them that they're farther from their families they're farther from uh, any kind of support network that they might need in order to make their asylum claims now we have to mention that it is it is legal to claim asylum there's a legal process in this country if you have been persecuted in your home country to claim asylum here and many of the migrants are going through that process and that's part of the reason why they weren't immediately expelled when they got into the country. Um, but in order to, to do that, you need to make a case, you need to get your documentation and your evidence together, and doing that when you're on an island somewhere where you don't know anyone, where you've been sent uh, and misdirected to, it just makes that process much harder. It makes it harder for uh, these folks to get in touch with their family and get in touch with their support networks. Uh, and so I think, as, as Eva said, some of that is is, is the point. They the, the folks that are behind this, Governor DeSantis, Governor Abbott in Texas, they want to cause chaos they want to you know prove that they can be c- cruel uh they want to follow in the mold of Donald Trump who previously tried to do something like this and said he was going to send all these migrants to sanctuary c- cities and so there isn't much thought for the actual uh, fact that these are human beings and these are families and children and you know they're experience is going to be impacted by these decisions and their ability to make some kind of claim or have some kind of humanity will also be impacted by sort of the fact that they're being shipped to places where they don't know anyone. Uh, And so it is, um, you know, incumbent upon some of these communities to try to help, um, but The fact that governors are using them as political pawns makes that process that much harder.
0: Eva, briefly to your earlier point about uh, movement in Congress around comprehensive immigration reform, why hasn't that gained traction?
3: Well, I think it's it's not for lack of effort, right? There have been many... uh folks on both sides of the aisle, Democrats and Republicans historically, who have tried to work on this. But this has just eluded Congress year after year. Uh, But I also wanted to mention that it's hard not to see this through a racialized lens, Congressman Moulton, of Massachusetts said uh, that Ron DeSantis is trying to earn George Wallace's legacy. And he was referring to the reverse freedom rides of 1962 when segregationists used uh, false promises of jobs to trick uh, black Southerners um, into moving north. And I think that this entire episode calls into question had these asylum seekers been white? Would they have been treated uh, any differently? And I think that as these Republican governors continue to, to do this, that is it's certainly going to invite those questions, uh, that correlation and, and uh, scrutiny. But I don't see any immigration reform happening in this Congress anytime soon.
0: Well, let's look at some other GOP messaging ahead of the midterms. Republican Senator Lindsey Graham of South Carolina introduced a national 15-week abortion ban on Tuesday. Steve, why would he do this and why now?
2: Well, that's a big question a lot of his colleagues want to know because I think uh, Senator Graham is reflecting what he feels is the core DNA of most Republicans when it comes to abortion and right to life. It's just that... um, you know, pardon the pun that he doesn't. That many of his colleagues don't want him to come out of the closet on that right now because they've got an election facing, and then they've seen that after the Roe v. Wade decision, an enormous change in the political uh, dynamics of of many of these races that are running, and right, Democrats we've seen, are coming back. We saw Republicans
0: with, pulling back from some of that. Messaging. Yeah, I was with a
2: leading Democrat for dinner the other night, and 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 he said. You know, Steve. Everybody's saying, "Hey, the Democrats are likely to lose the House." He says, "I see it as a jump ball because we this this Roe v. Wade situation and the views on abortion have really changed the game." So Lindsey Graham has walked in and done something that, that he feels reflects the core values of the party. His own party is frustrated with him because it's something they would have liked to have kept a bit sheltered. So I I can't answer why he did it there. What I can tell you is lots of Republicans are upset about it because they know that they're going to be uh, tested on that on that issue right now.
0: That includes. Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell and Senator Shelley Moore Capito of West Virginia. How are we seeing other Republicans distance themselves from this messaging, Eva?
3: I think they're just having a hard time landing on a cohesive strategy and message on this, uh, but not through lack of effort. Um, Axios reported this week that the National Republican Senatorial Committee, they have a memo circulating among members uh, urging them to try to be compassionate when um, framing this conversation. But you see them. I've been out on the campaign trail in recent weeks in Pennsylvania and Georgia, and you see really Republican candidates really struggling to talk about this, right? They did uh, anticipate that they would be having conversations about um, miscarriage. Uh, the what is the future of miscarriage care, or uh, what it means that uh, doctors, uh, women, pregnant women um, could be subject to criminal liability. Right? These are the conversations that we're having having in this country uh, in the wake of Roe being overturned. And Republicans are really, really struggling, I think, to land on a salient message.
0: Tolu, does this point to, to a bit of a disconnect in the GOP? Because for West Virginia lawmakers passed a near-total abortion ban on Tuesday. Indiana's near-total abortion ban went into effect this week. Most abortions are now banned in at least 13 states. And yet we know, just looking at the polling, this is, is an incredibly complex issue within parties. So is there a disconnect
1: here? Yes, there is a a very serious disconnect uh, geographically, demographically um, between men and women. We saw in Kansas where they had a a special election to decide on this issue. A large number of Republicans stood up and voted that down uh, and voted to uh, keep the state from moving towards uh, being one of the states that has a near total ban on abortion. Uh, And so Republicans were not expecting a number of their voters to be against some of the moves that they were making uh, and so there is a little bit of a scramble to try to figure out where the political nexus is for their party on this issue they're not yet clear um, whether you know their voters generally want uh, you know very strident laws on abortion or whether they want you know more uh, moderate laws uh, and more moderate restrictions and I think Senator Graham said that he was trying to strike a balance and try to get the party together but because of that disconnect, he was not very successful. And you heard a number of his colleagues say that they did not want to be campaigning about on, on this. They did not want to be talking about this. They don't have a consensus on whether it should be life begins at conception and no abortion should be allowed or 15 weeks is the right cutoff or 20 weeks is the right cutoff. Uh, there's not a consensus within the Republican Party on this. And so that disconnect and that lack of unity is very much on display across the political spectrum uh, in a number of different states.
0: Well, this week wrapped up the primary season with Rhode Island, Delaware, and New Hampshire. Although pr- former President Trump didn't make an appearance on Tuesday, his presence was still felt. Pro-Trump candidates swept New Hampshire's Republican primary with three Trump supporters beating out more moderate opponents. Eva, talk us through the results of the New Hampshire primary.
3: Yeah, so Dan Boldick was the victor uh, there in the Republican uh, Senate primary there. He is Retired army brigadier general, uh, but uh, also an election denier who has embraced uh, former President Donald Trump's uh, lie. Now, interestingly, uh, rather quickly, he seems to be reversing that position, and that is, I think, a recognition uh, that the the broader he has to now appeal to the broader electorate. It's no surprise that we're seeing. Uh, Trump Republicans are uh, so successful in these primaries, but especially in a place like New Hampshire, uh, the challenge for these candidates is, yes, they can appeal to the base all they want in these primaries, but in a place like New Hampshire, in a place like Vermont, and a place like Maryland that have historically had Republican governors, uh, in general elections, you also have to appeal to independents, maybe some Democrats. And you're not going to do that, continuing to um, harp on these grievances uh, in service to the former president about 2020.
0: The other big Republican win out of New Hampshire is Don Baldock. He won the Republican nomination for Senate on Tuesday. He'll face incumbent Democrat Maggie Hassan in November. Uh, Baldock is a conspiracy theorist. He's falsely claimed the 2020 election was stolen, There are, that there are microchips and COVID vaccines. Of course, it's not true. But When he reversed course this week, Tolu, what did you make of that shift?
1: Uh, It's very clear that he is looking at the polling. He is doing what we have seen for decades in politics and called the pivot. But now that we have video and social media and now that it's very clear that in the primary he was aiming and angling for Donald Trump's endorsement, which he didn't ultimately get, but he got a lot of Donald Trump's voters uh, to be able to win the primary. Now he's thinking about the general election, and you cannot win in a state like New Hampshire if you only have voters who are very much in support of the big lie, the idea that you know the, the election was stolen. So now he says that all of a sudden he's done all of this research, and he doesn't believe the election was stolen, and he wants to take the more mainstream, more rational position in order to appeal to the mainstream, rational voters who make up a larger chunk of the electorate in New Hampshire than uh, the people who believe that the election was stolen, and um, in order to Try to put together a coalition. He needs his primary voters, those voters that support Donald Trump and the big lie, as well as a lot of moderate voters who crossed the aisle and voted for uh, Biden or maybe voted for uh, Senator Hassan uh, you know, in 2016. And so he is trying to pr- perform that pivot. It's not clear whether he's going to get some backlash from Donald Trump, who wants loyalty from everyone who is in the Republican Party. Or his voters. So it's not clear that he'll be able to pull this off, but it's clear that he's trying to uh, draw an inside straight and win in a state like New Hampshire, which has been a difficult place for Republicans for the last few years.
0: Eva, real quickly, former Trump press staffer Caroline Levitt is only the second Gen Z candidate to win a House primary. What are her chances in November?
3: Well, I think she faces an uh, uphill battle um, in that race in the general election, but it does show that an increasing number of uh, of, uh, this generation is getting involved in politics and there was a lot of attention for her candidacy and certainly a lot of uh, excitement there in the primary field uh, that led to her victory. But I think it will be a challenge for her in the general election.
0: Before we move on, we remember one of the great jazz pianist and composer Ramsey Lewis died at his Chicago home on Monday. Lewis became an unlikely pop star for his album The End Crowd. It hit number two on the Billboard pop charts in 1967. Lewis's career spanned six decades. His final recording was made just last year. He recorded over 80 albums, received five gold records, and won three Grammys. He was 87. More from you and our guests in a moment. You're listening to the News Roundup. Let's get back to the conversation. The Senate Judiciary Committee says it will investigate claims made in a recent book that the former president used the Justice Department to target his political enemies. And these allegations are from former U.S. Attorney Jeffrey Berman. He was fired from his position in the powerful Southern District of New York just five months before the 2020 elections. Steve, what more do we know about these allegations from the former federal prosecutor?
2: Well, I haven't read the book yet, but the reports on the book show, uh, according to Mr. Berman, that they had a number of investigations going going on uh, about one one case involved the Turkish Bank, Halk Bank's um, interactions with Iran. Another was looking into Steve Bannon's fundraising, which has been much in the news of late, around the Build the Wall project. Um, there have been other investigations that were looking into the relationship uh, of Rudy Giuliani and Lev Parnas and others with regards to uh, President Trump's effort to dig up dirt on the Bidens and the Biden family in Ukraine. That that Berman alleges that William Barr, attorney general, stopped these processes, pressured, bullied, intervened in a way that our attorney generals are supposed to be independent of these investigations. That's the real allegation. The other really interesting part of the story is that Berman says he tried to um, offer these revelations before, but as he went through the process with the Department of Justice of Uh, trying to get permission to do so because of the sensitivity, he was declined that opportunity because a lot of people have said, why did you wait until the publication of your book so you can get rich telling these stories? And he said, I was blocked and barred, which is another part of what people might allege was a kind of obstruction of the telling of this story. So that's what's going on. It's really the question of did Attorney General Barr inappropriately intervene in important uh, investigations, some involving national security.
0: Well, and we should say then Attorney General William Barr fired Berman in June 2020 after Berman refused to resign. And at the time, Berman's New York office was investigating Trump's inner circle for corruption. Give us some more insight into why he says he was fired and why does Barr say he was fired?
1: Well, uh, Berman has essentially accused the Trump administration and the Justice Department under Donald Trump of doing what many people suspected they were doing, which is politically interfering with the carrying out of justice in this country. It's um, a pretty strong allegation, even though we have a lot of evidence uh, that we've seen that sort of hints at that, hints at the idea that Donald Trump was uh, trying to shield his political friends from being prosecuted and sick the Justice Department against his political enemies. Uh, Berman essentially is an insider that is confirming a lot of those allegations, saying that that is what uh, Donald Trump and his administration and his lackeys within the Justice Department were trying to do. And he essentially says that he was not willing to be a part of that and he was bounced out of the Justice Department. Uh, to do that. Like, like Steve, I haven't read the book yet, but that allegation shines through clearly from the reports. And it's a strong allegation. It's very easy for us to kind of glaze over that because we saw so much chaos and turmoil and breaking of norms during the Trump administration. But to have an insider, someone who was inside the Justice Department saying that, you know, political interference was a part of his experience while he was there uh, is a pretty major Breaking, uh, breaking of norms, and uh, I wanted to, just to make sure that we we pointed that out um, because it's not every day that you know you hear from someone who was inside uh, essentially saying that you know the breaking of uh, the constitutional norms of this country were, were were happening on a regular basis in the previous administration.
2: Steve, I mean, we should you know also add to this story that it, that it, that Attorney General Barr. Um, says that Berman was incompetent, did not do this, and that none of these stories are accurate. So there's another side to this that we haven't fully heard uh, uh, from the former attorney general um, who's who's been out there in, on his own right now uh, bashing President Trump. But with regards to these, he has a different take. And I think that the bigger thing about it is um, – what's very interesting to those of us who have looked at this is Berman is raising really, really important issues that are significant and coming to light now. William Barr acts as if this was hardly noticeable. It was just not on his, you know, he says he didn't even notice these issues or know about them. It was like an, you know, uh, not a visible concern, at least in the way Barr is telling his story right now.
0: Well, the Senate Judiciary Committee is now investigating the book's allegations, and it's requested all communication between the Southern District of New York and the Justice Department. So Eva, what will you be watching for next?
3: Yeah, I'm curious to see if what they are able to, to get, Um, I think that, and I'm curious to see if they have any Republican cooperation or if this becomes another flashpoint on Capitol Hill, but obviously the allegations that uh, are being made by Berman have to be investigated. Well, let's move on
0: to another story this week that we've been following. This week, more subpoenas from the Justice Department. It issued 40 of them and seized the phones of two top aides to former President Donald Trump. This latest action is part of the DOJ's inquiry into attempts by the Trump administration to subvert the 2020 election result. And this is some of the most aggressive action we've seen so far from the Justice Department's investigation into the January 6th insurrection. Tulu, what can you tell us about these recent moves?
1: Uh, It shows that this investigation is ongoing, it's expanding, and it's becoming more serious and more aggressive. Um, You know, 40 subpoenas is not something to be sniffed at. It's very clear that the Justice Department is taking this idea that crimes were committed uh, in the lead-up and during and the aftermath of January 6th by people who were in Trump's orbit. And we've seen a number of those people have their cell phones seized, a number of his aides, advisors, people that he was talking to uh, have their communications seized upon by the um, Justice Department, which is not a, a, sm- a small thing either. Um, we typically don't see um, political figures, people who are close to the former president, uh, have their you know devices seized. We obviously typically don't see a former president having his home raided, even though that was a separate investigation but uh, just to highlight the number of norms that are are really being broken because of the fact that there is uh, a sense among those in the Justice Department that crimes were committed, that this needs to be uh, investigated thoroughly, uh, and that by uh, you know issuing these subpoenas, by uncovering every um, you know potential lead, that they may be able to find out exactly what happened in the lead up to January 6th, and and who was responsible for all of the crimes that were committed on that day, and uh, whether or not someone should be held responsible for organizing and um, inspiring the violence that we saw on January 6th.
2: Steve, jump in here. Well, the other pop-up in this interesting story is we were all riveted to the testimony that we heard from people who worked very closely under former chief of staff, Mark Meadows and mm-hmm. president Trump and others about the secret services texts with each other's comments, yeah. trying to get president Trump, not himself to walk up the steps leading these groups. And so these texts apparently disappeared with regards to up, you know, with, with the process of upgrading phones. And you know, we're all wondering how can that happen? And they've disappeared. Well, apparently along with these 40 subpoenas that they've offered, those many of those texts are back in the story. Now, uh, I find that fascinating. There's more reporting that needs to be done on it. But somehow, somewhere, according to reporting that's just been released, many of these texts from the Secret Service communications between themselves and other people involved that they've been offering the subpoenas. We will have an opportunity to understand some of the chatter that was going on among the Secret Service agents that were there um, on the ground with the president seeing what was going on. Uh
0: Eva, is this an issue for Republicans, especially election deniers who are running in the midterms, as these investigations continue and more evidence emerges?
3: in the wake of the Mar-a-Lago raid, uh, many of them suggested that this would actually embolden uh, the former president and uh, Republicans, that uh, they would be able to campaign on this. Um, You know, the so-called deep state is um, attacking Republicans. But I'm not sure if that argument will continue to hold, uh, especially as we get more information there. And these investigations are pretty serious. We're seeing the Justice Department seize phones of two top advisors to the former president. Um, I I think that they perhaps are going to start to worry and be less sort of concerned about any sort of fleeting political implications in terms of uh, being able to score sort of a short-term win and what the legal uh, liability might be.
0: The House Committee investigating January 6th plans to reconvene on September 28th. Eva,
3: any any tips? Yes, so... uh Congressman Thompson um, said that the committee intends to put together an interim report uh, in the two weeks after the September hearing, so we should get that in mid-October. But they haven't, to my knowledge, um, indicated what the subject of that hearing will be uh, yet. Uh, We know that the committee wants to speak to conservative activist Ginny Thomas, the wife of Supreme Court Justice uh, Clarence Thomas. Of course, um, text messages between her and a former White House Chief of Staff, Mark Meadows, indicate that she was uh, very much involved in trying to um, uh, be a part of this initiative campaign effort to uh, keep the former president in office. We know that the committee is also seeking to speak to former House Speaker Newt Gingrich. But in terms of the subject of that hearing on September 28th, Uh, We are still awaiting further details.
0: Well, in a statement, Democratic Representative Benny Thompson of Mississippi said, quote, the select committee has developed a massive body of evidence, In quote, that's ahead of the upcoming hearing. Toluse, what do we know about new evidence that's emerged since these hearings started?
1: Uh, well, we know they have um, picked up a lot of evidence over the course of, of these hearings that started um, earlier this year, and they've had more cooperation from witnesses, including Cassidy Hutchinson, uh, a former aide to, to, to Donald Trump, and they've had uh, people like um, the former counsel to the White House, Pat Cipollone, also testify as well, both on camera and um, in you know, closed-door settings. So they are continuing to compile this information. They have Hundreds and hundreds of hours of testimony from people that have that, that they have not yet uh, put out, and they're also looking at a clock. There's the, the potential that if Republicans take over the Congress in January, that they would not be able to put forward some of this evidence that they've uh, that they've collected. So they are pushing to have this interim report by next month, and obviously before the midterms. And then they're going to continue their work all the way through the end of December, continuing to disseminate new information, including information they say that they have gathered and that they will continue to gather um, that Americans are not aware of yet to make sure that people know what happened on January 6th. Uh, And they did bring to light a lot of new information, even though uh, we had the impeachment, we've had a lot of reports. Uh, This committee has put forward a lot of information to the American public. And as they see their uh, timeline potentially running out at the end of December, I would expect them to continue to put out as much information as they can so that the public knows what they found during this investigation.
0: Well, former Vice President Mike Pence says he's considering testifying. Eva, how likely is it we could see him come forward?
3: I'm not sure. Um, He has made this suggestion for quite a while, but that would be a huge step. And I don't know how all that revelatory it would be because you know his former aides uh, have already been cooperating with the committee and we have learned quite a bit from them. Uh, certainly that would be a big moment if he did but I'm n- I'm not sure. We've seen that the Former Vice President in recent months has made more of a break with the former president, but i it would be a huge monumental step if he actually you know participated in public hearings and i 'm just not sure he has reached that stage as yet
0: Steve, when we talk about the timing here, we know if uh, with the midterms coming up there is some pressure on the committee, but then we also have these criminal investigations that could go on for a really long time. I mean, how much of a role is time playing
2: in this? I think time is playing a very big role in uh, trying to control and and direct the conversation that's going on among citizens in America about what the priorities and concerns are. Um, I think the revelations of the committee have been riveting. We've seen enormous uh, interest in those. But as we've been discussing in this show, there are a lot of other things going on. There's abortion politics, there's economic issues and concerns and anxieties, inflation. And so a lot of people... Are you know? I think there's a divide in the Democratic Party about how much you want to continue to basically elevate this. And I think even in in in, you know former Vice President Mike Pence's mind, he's got a book coming out that we know a little bit about, in which he says, you know, I wasn't scared, I was angry. Uh, And and you know, I think the not wanting to provide Mike Pence an opportunity to pontificate, to gather political storm, and to kind of screw that up is going to be you know another element in this in this uh, in this story. So it it's out there, but I think there are contending interests in what. Narrative um, they would like to see playing out in in front of the public at that time. But I I agree with my colleagues on here that this process looks like it is expanding, deepening, getting bigger. We're seeing more and more evidence come through and being processed, and it doesn't look like it's going to end anytime soon.
0: We've got about 30 seconds here. I'd love to hear from each of you a story you're watching
1: in the coming week. Tolu? Uh, I'll be watching President Biden uh, as he goes abroad to uh, London for the Queen's funeral and then comes back to uh, UNGA in New York to talk to heads of state. He's going to be big on foreign policy, so I'll be watching to see what he says.
3: Eva, what about you? I'm actually headed to Georgia today to cover the governor's race there, and I'm curious to see in the rematch against Stacey Abrams and Brian Kemp how much the abortion debate factors into that race. Steve, you get the last word? Maybe
2: this will feed into your next hour, but I'm watching activities on Taiwan and legislation related to Taiwan and uh, trying to seek to arm Taiwan, but raise its diplomatic status in ways that China is going to have some problems with.
0: That's Steve Clemens. He's editor-at-large at at Semaphore. That's a global news outlet. Also with us, Eva McKend, a national politics reporter with CNN, and Tolu Olurunipa. He's White House bureau chief for The Washington Post. Thanks to you all. This is the News Roundup. We'll discuss the week's biggest headlines from around the world in just a moment. You're listening to 1A. This is the 1A podcast. I'm Jen White, and you're listening to the News Roundup.
1: It's very clear Russia is not going to win this
0: war. That was the assessment this Wednesday from The Economist's Arkady Ostrovsky. He joined us from Kiev after it became clear Russian troops in eastern Ukraine had left, and they'd left in a hurry.
1: Putin went into this war and imposed it onto Russia with the idea and the sort of promise of fast victory. He didn't prepare his country for war. He prepared his country for celebrations and a blitzkrieg.
0: And it's where we'll start the roundup this week. But there's lots to catch up on, too, from the UK, Europe and Central Asia. Joining us is Indira Lakshmanan, Senior Executive Editor at National Geographic. Indira, it's great to have you back. Thanks for having me. James Kitfield is also with us. He's a senior fellow at the Center for the Study of Presidency and Congress. He's the author of In the Company of Heroes, the inspiring stories of Medal of Honor recipients from America's longest wars in Afghanistan and Iraq. James, it's good to see you. Great to be with you. And Joyce Karam is back. Joyce is a senior correspondent for The National. Joyce, thanks for being here.
6: Good to be with you, Jen.
0: Well, let's get back to Ukraine, a dramatic week with Russia's army on the run and the first signs in Moscow that support for President Putin is starting to fray. In Kiev is Nick Schifrin. He's the foreign affairs and defense correspondent for the PBS NewsHour. Nick, thanks so much for joining us.
5: Thanks so much for having me.
0: So you just returned from a trip to eastern Ukraine, along with Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky. Why was the liberation of the city, Azum, such a significant victory for Ukraine?
5: So it's a a liberation not only of of Izum, which is the largest city that's been liberated, but a half dozen other cities with at least 20,000 population and about 35 towns, villages uh, and and cities with a population close to 200,000. And it doesn't sound like a lot of people liberated, and we should get to some of their stories in a second, but uh, strategically, it's very important militarily. Uh, It puts Russia on the back foot. This is where Russia uh, really uh, waged war in the east. Uh, This was the base of its operations in in Kharkiv, which is the second largest city in in Ukraine. And without this territory, Russia can certainly not progress in Kharkiv. And without this territory, Russia is very vulnerable in the territory that it has been Uh, uh, occupying for almost eight years or for eight years, and that's in the Donbass, in Donetsk and Luhansk, which is just a little farther south of Kharkiv. So that's the military uh, component. But politically, uh, it's it's very significant as, as well. You see a lot of Western European leaders talking about how Ukraine's progress means that they can support Ukraine for the longer term. I spoke to the foreign minister, Dmitry Koleva, today, who said the same thing, that this progress will help them diplomatically and politically. So Ukraine now has momentum, Russia's on the back foot, and that has lots of implications here in Kiev, in Moscow, and in the West.
0: You mentioned the stories of civilians in these liberated c- cities. What have you learned uh, about what they were forced to endure?
5: Horror. There is no one word that is better to describe it, horror. Um, there are stories of torture, uh, of murder, of mass graves that have been discovered in Izum, both of civilians and soldiers, families who spent most of the last six months in a basement, Uh, I spoke to one in a small village north of the city of Kharkiv uh, who were shaking and had been shaking, they said, for months on months and months. They were happened to be on the front lines, so they were actually hit by both the Ukrainians and the Russians firing out going, um, terrorized by Russian soldiers who came in early on and uh, cleansed, in their word, the village of anyone the Russians believed wasn't trustworthy, wasn't loyal to the Russian cause. And so the stories are sadly familiar to us. That that shouldn't be, uh, that shouldn't mean that we're not shocked by them, but we have heard these stories in other places that the Russians have occupied, Bucha, Irpin, certainly Mariupol, when we were getting stories out of there from the South. And so continuing proof of Russian war crimes continuing proof of the dehumanization that has happened politically in Russia about Ukraine, or at least that's how Russian soldiers treat Ukrainians, uh, and continuing proof that uh, this war that Moscow is waging uh, is a very personal one felt by uh, millions and millions of Ukrainians.
0: You spoke with President Zelensky about the importance of him taking the trip to eastern Ukraine and, and a note that there's a lot of background
5: noise here. It's very important that our soldiers came back and they occupied our territories and our people. It means that the, the, the life came back. Ukraine is here. That's very important. For me also important because they, they do their important, strong and very dangerous work. And if our soldiers are here, so it means I, I have to support people and soldiers.
0: Now Zelensky's visit surprised a lot of international observers, given the risks involved with leaving the capital during the war. He even got into a minor car accident on his way back to Kyiv. But what did his visit signify?
5: Well, you just heard it there. Uh, proof that Ukraine is reseizing its own territory. Proof that Ukraine's military has the capacity to defeat the Russian military and take back their own territory. And proof that the Russian military is a lot less strong, especially in the East, than than we thought. Uh, That's, I think, the main point that he was trying to make. And the second point, of course, like any politician, like any commander-in-chief, you want to come and support the soldiers. And so that's why we saw Zelensky uh, come to um, uh, multiple cities uh, in the East uh, and went to his Zoom, and there's selfies with soldiers. Uh, There's a national anthem that he sung next to the soldiers who liberated the city, and he gave awards to the soldiers who helped
0: we're talking to Nick Schifrin. Nick is the foreign affairs and defense correspondent for the PBS NewsHour. He's joining us from the Ukrainian capital of Kiev, We're having a little trouble with his line. We'll try to get him back. Well, Russia's defense minister is explaining away the troop movement, saying it's all part of the quote, special military operation to liberate Donbass. Uh, James, how does Russian military strategy appear to be changing on the ground?
4: Well, they have because you know they're reacting to this off, this counteroffensive and, this, and the success of it, and and the, and the whether they are trying to deny it or not, the news is all over Russia. The, what's happening, and you can hear it in the commentary on their television, the state-run television. But they have you know started bombing uh, civilian infrastructure. Uh, power stations, etc., going back to their playbook, where if they can't win, sort of in a, in a uh, soldier-on-soldier battle, they just stand back and, and level places. And we've seen this time and again with them. am uh, I, I, you know, the question that this rises in everyone's mind is: Is this a turning point? And and you know, war is is inherently the most unpredictable endeavor in humankind. But um, it certainly is a momentum shift. And we saw, you know, I, I covered very closely what happened a year ago in Afghanistan. And once the Taliban got got the momentum and started taking provincial capitals, taking territory, and routing the, Af- there was a there was a a moment where, in retrospect, it was a turning point. So we'll see what happens here. I, I would just also note that as Russia. Uh, you know, loses ground, loses territory, loses momentum, they get more desperate. And that means they get more dangerous in a lot of ways.
0: Well, the Russian military is facing criticism from one of Vladimir Putin's closest allies. Ramzan Kadyrov released an audio message on Telegram. He's the Kremlin appointed leader of Chechnya. And here's part of that message with translation from the Guardian of some of his comments he's saying quote they have made mistakes and I think they will draw the necessary conclusions if today or tomorrow no changes in strategy are made I will be forced to speak with the leadership of the defense ministry and the leadership of the country to explain the real situation on the ground to them it's a very interesting situation it's astounding I would say end quote meanwhile a group of local politicians in st. Petersburg have called for President Putin's removal uh, Nick you're back with us, how is the tide shifting among President Putin's allies and leadership within Russia as the war continues?
5: You know, it's really hard to tell. I mean, to, to use James's phrase, the momentum has shifted, right? So we know that to be the case militarily. Uh, and we certainly know that to be the case politically for Kyiv when it comes to sending its message to the world right now. Does that really mean that somehow President Putin is at risk? You know that is—I mean—it's—it's—it's it's, it's very, very difficult for any of us to guess. Uh, Soviet and Russian history, of course, is is littered with examples of of dramatic change all of a sudden that we all say, "Oh, in retrospect, of course, it was coming," but but in the moment, it's it's just too hard to predict. Yes, we have seen some signs of discontent. Uh, certainly, and Kadyrov is is a good example that you just played. But you know, remember, this is a system built by Vladimir Putin uh, in which it is supposed to be that the military and intelligence services fight over each other. Nobody gets strong enough to challenge the leader. That's how he has built the system. Uh, and, and so we should, I think, be a little cautious in assuming that uh, internal fighting uh, really imperils President Putin, but we just don't know.
0: Nick, briefly, what stories are you following as you remain in
5: Kyiv? Uh, so we interviewed uh, the Foreign Minister Kuleba today uh, about uh, what we were talking about earlier today, uh, earlier about the mass grave. And, and it was an interesting point that he made, which is, look, I'm still ready to, as he put it, speak to the devil. I am still ready to talk to Russia if I need to, but he doesn't particularly want to. And right now there's no sign of any diplomatic talks on the horizon.
0: That's Nick Schifrin. Nick joined us from Kiev where he's reporting for the PBS NewsHour. Nick, we appreciate your time. Thanks so much. Family members of two Americans detained in Russia will be at the White House today. President Biden is scheduled to meet with WNBA star Brittany Griner's wife, Sherelle, for the first time. We've talked about Griner's case on 1A. She's facing a nine-year prison sentence after being arrested in Moscow with a small amount of cannabis oil. That was just before Russia invaded Ukraine. Griner was entering Russia for work to play with a professional basketball team in the WNBA offseason. Also meeting with Biden, Elizabeth Whalen, the sister of Marine veteran Paul Whalen. Whalen is serving a 16-year prison sentence on spying charges. When he was arrested, Whalen said he was in Russia for a friend's wedding. He had previously received a bad conduct discharge from the Marine Corps. The administration released a detailed proposal in July to bring Whalen and Griner home, but no updates on that proposal have been made public. Joyce, what are Whalen and Griner's families hoping to achieve from this meeting? Is there a clear path forward to bring them
6: home uh, this is a very important meeting, uh, Jen. It's coming as public pressure continues to grow on the Biden administration. And more importantly, this week, we saw former uh, Governor Governor Bill Richardson and his team uh, head to Russia and meet with uh, leadership there. As we know, uh, Governor Richardson has been involved in uh, previous uh, mediation efforts to release uh, uh, U.S. citizens' detained uh, abroad. So it would be interesting if we see any progress, if the president gives them any uh, good news on the release of um, Brittany Griner and uh, Paul uh, Whelan. Uh, The issue here, as you mentioned, in the swap that has been uh, floated um, uh, last month, uh, the Russians want. their prisoner, uh, Victor out, uh, who is held in uh, uh, Illinois and uh, was a previous arm dealer. Uh, but that's not enough for them. They've been asking uh, for more. So did, uh, did the third party mediation by Bill Richardson, uh, is he promising more? Is the administration uh, going to give uh, more to Moscow on this? And will we see uh, good news? Uh, we'll have to wait to see what we hear from from the White House after the meeting today.
0: Well, fighting on the border between two former Soviet republics, Azerbaijan and neighboring Armenia flared up this week. The death toll now stands at more than 170. And this is the latest battle over the nagorno karabakh region. Unrest between the two sides in 2020 claimed the lives of more than 6,000 people. And prior to that, there were full-scale wars between the two in the 80s and 90s. nagorno karabakh is a former Soviet enclave that lies inside the Azerbaijan borders, but is mostly populated by ethnic Armenian. Indira, explain more about what's going on here.
7: Yes, I would like to. But Jen, I also want to just make a point about the Brittany Griner-Paul Whelan case that it's inextricably tied to the last story we were talking about, Uh, Ukraine. mm -hmm. And you know, I think it's important that we not forget any pressure that we have or lack of pressure we have on the Russian government to set free these two Americans is also related to the fact that the United States has been leading the West along with Britain in supporting Ukraine. And at a time when Ukraine has recovered 6,000 square kilometers of its territory, an area the size of Delaware, and where Putin is increasingly criticized and maybe taking some radical steps like full mobilization is under discussion of the, um, you know, basically drafting or calling up um, people for something he's refused to even call a war, possibly hitting Ukrainian civilian infrastructure, or even possibly the use of tactical nuclear weapons or allowing Zaporizhia the um, nuclear plant to sort of melt down. You know, this is all tied to the pressure they have over us holding Americans. So turning back to to the story about Azerbaijan and Armenia, um, Nagorno-Karabakh is a complicated story. We actually on the NatGeo webpage have a really good explainer of the history of this. It's an enclave within Azerbaijan, as you say, that is populated mostly by ethnic Armenian separatists. And in 2020, there was a big push that took place where um, Azerbaijan you know got an upper hand. I think what's happening right now is that Azerbaijan is trying to take advantage of the weakness of Russia the you know the fact that Russia is focused on the Ukraine situation and get in there and you know try to get back some of the territory that Armenia um, got. So, you know, that's basically what's going on. It's the deadliest outbreak of fighting in the last two years. And Armenia is calling on Russia to help them, Azerbaijan is calling on Turkey to help them. These are traditional allies. And, uh, you know, it's an it's an unpleasant situation and one that we don't really know what the outcome is going to be.
0: James, if Turkey and Russia get pulled into this conflict, what would it mean? And what would it mean for wider worries about instability?
4: Well, Russia has been pulled into it in the past. They've had peacekeepers in that sort of conflict zone that we're talking about. Um, and, you know, what this reveals is that as Russia has these setbacks in Ukraine, its position as a local guarantor of security or a local arbiter of security in its newer broad something that is very fundamental to Putin's worldview that Russia should be the hegemon in this region. And it's, you know, and it, it decides on these, these these conflicts, you know, and tries to, tr- tries to sort of push its weight around. That's, he's, they're losing their grip on that because of Ukraine. So we've also seen fighting recently in Kyrgyzstan and again, in Tajikistan at the border, um, another place where Soviet republics, you know, usually look first to Moscow uh, and are seeing Moscow distracted and trying to, you know, take... Uh, Really, advantage of that. So we're seeing Putin kind of lose his grip on his near abroad, which goes absolutely against his sort of vision of what Moscow's uh, should be in that region.
0: Well, a ceasefire brokered by Russia on Tuesday didn't hold, but by this morning, a second truce between Armenia and Azerbaijan was still in place. And on Thursday, U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken held a phone call with leaders of both nations. Nancy Pelosi is due to travel to the Armenian capital this weekend. Joyce, why are there such intense diplomatic efforts to contain this fighting.
6: Uh, because it's critical not to see it uh, flare up to a degree to everyone that would distract from uh, the war uh, on Ukraine and have uh, you know uh, for for the West for Russia uh, another uh, conflict on their hands. Uh, uh, but as uh, as Indira and uh, Jamie mentioned, uh, it seems that the Azaris see an opportunity uh, here from Russia's uh, weakness to uh, to step in and pressure. Uh, uh, Armenia. For the Europeans, however, they're in a very tough uh, spot, Jan, because Azerbaijan uh, just announced uh, last week that it would increase it uh, gas exports to europe by 30% so on the one hand they they are against any new offensive um, by uh, baku but on the other hand they want to maintain their good relations uh, and that applies also to the us in uh, helping fend off some of the ramifications from uh, ukraine
0: well, let's turn next to Central Asia, where on Thursday, Russian President Vladimir Putin and Chinese President Xi Jinping met in Uzbekistan. Since the pandemic, both leaders have rarely been seen outside of their own countries. Indira, what persuaded them and other world leaders to fly into Uzbekistan for this international summit?
7: Yeah, this is actually the very first time that Xi Jinping, the Chinese leader, has traveled abroad since the start of COVID. Um, You know, he's been at home really focusing on the zero COVID policy, um, you know, making that the number one priority, understandably. Um, But this is the Shanghai Cooperation Organization. So it's something that, you know, China is really the leader of. it, It involves China, Russia, Central Asian nations, South Asian nations, and Iran was just approved as um, a member of this group. And, you know, it's a very important regional block where China wants to show leadership. What I think is the most fascinating thing that happened here is just a few weeks before Russia invaded Ukraine, um, Xi Jinping had pledged this no-limits friendship mm-hmm. to Russia. They had stood together and said no-limits friendship. Then suddenly Russia invades Ukraine, which is the kind of thing that China definitely does not approve of. They don't approve of invasions of other countries. And what's fascinating is that although No Xi Jinping hasn't come right out and harshly criticized Putin. um, When Putin made his remarks at this summit, um, he actually said, he acknowledged that China's leader had concerns and questions about Russia's war in Ukraine, which is an indication that she probably said, if you don't say it on stage, then I'm going to say it, um, which shows that there are some limits to that friendship. And there was also a, a real rebuke in a way where Xi Jinping, in this statement that was issued afterwards, China said it was willing to work with Russia to demonstrate the responsibility of a major country, play a leading role and inject stability into a turbulent world, which really is an implicit rebuke, reproaching Russians that they're not acting like a great power, and that they're creating instability. So very, very interesting happenings over there.
0: Well, James, analysts say Putin and she's interaction can't be considered a meeting
4: of equals, why not? well, because uh, Russia is the junior partner in this in, in this alliance and and it's becoming more junior as time goes by, and Ukraine uh, comes a draw on its on its stature and on its resources um it's a, you know it's in the middle of a route right now, so it comes to uh, meetings with China. Very much in need of China's support. Uh, You know, just in February, as Indira said, there was this, you know, partnership without limits. And it was this idea that these two authoritarian countries would sort of forge a new world order that is more uh, friendly to autocrats like themselves. Both of them are facing uh, a a very difficult time in that sort of uh, mission or that sort of project. China, you know, Xi's got a big party conference coming up in a month where he's going to go for a third term and be the first uh, uh, leader of China for a very long time to do that. He's got an economy that is uh, teetering, he's got a crisis with uh, overextended property. Uh, issues and liquidity for, for real estate in, in China. They have this zero COVID uh, policy that's very unpopular right now. So Xi is not sitting comfortably on the throne right now. He he's, sees a sort of Cold War environment descending on between him and the West. Uh, that's very hard for his economy, which is very dependent on trade with the West. So uh, both these leaders are on kind of shaky ground right now. And I think that came through very clearly. The new king has spoken. My lord's and members of the House of Commons. We gather today in remembrance of the remarkable span of the Queen's dedicated service to her nations and peoples. She set an example of selfless duty, which with God's help and your counsels, I am resolved
3: faithfully to follow.
0: Indira, Nat Geo has devoted a lot of time and energy to this story, and the UK is a country you know well. What stood out for you from these past seven days?
7: Yeah, well, the com- you're absolutely right. We had a whole suite of stories, which I encourage people to look at on our website if you're interested in the history of the monarchy and specifically Queen Elizabeth's reign. Um, what has stood out for me is the what seems to be really a nationwide mourning people who say that they didn't expect themselves to be overtaken by emotion, being overtaken, this incredible miles-long queue that is in a very orderly way set up at Westminster Abbey. Miles and miles of people, um, thousands of mourners who are expected to um, come To the procession on Monday, where her funeral is starting at 11 a.m. and is going to end with two minutes of national silence before noon. Um, You know, it has. It's a time of transition, and yet it's it's still a time of. Um, you know, reinforcing the monarchy. This has been really interesting to me because some people have um, come out saying, not my king, anti-monarchy protesters. And that's been sort of surprising because, you know, Britain is a country that is famed for free speech and irreverence. And um, a number of people have been detained by police for expressing anti-monarchy views. They've been, you know, arrested for harassment and, um, you know, one hopes that that is not going to continue. There are some new laws in Britain that are allowing, you know, easier detention of people, um causing a public um, disruption. I hope that that's just a temporary thing. But, you know, there is tons and tons of pomp and circumstance around this event. And, uh, you know, it'll be interesting to see how Charles III settles into this role. Well, there are some shifts happening right
0: now. One part of the UK ruled by a party that wants to break up the United Kingdom. And with the Queen's passing. There are questions of whether a fully independent Scotland is any more likely. What do you think?
7: Yeah, you're absolutely right. I think it definitely gives momentum to those who would want the breakup um, of the UK. I don't know how far that's actually going to get. It didn't go through last time, even though there was a lot of strength in the Scottish independence movement. And don't forget the Commonwealth countries, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, there are, there are countries that have been pulling out of the Commonwealth. Well, um, and let's quickly and-
0: hear from PJ Patterson, uh, the Jamaica's prime minister between 1992 and 2006.
7: It's nothing personal. It's
1: not about Queen Elizabeth or King Charles. It is
5: getting a head of state
2: who is
5: Jamaican.
0: So hearing there the desire from some states to break free from their past colonial rulers. Indira, go ahead.
7: Yeah, well, I was just going to explain to folks who may not know, since we're not royalists <laughs> or monarchists in the United States here, um, that the Commonwealth is a group of 15 independent com- countries that recognize the Queen, and now Charles III is their official head of state. And one would be surprised, this includes countries as large as Canada, and also Jamaica, and as, as well Australia and New Zealand, and you know the Queen's face and now King Charles' face are going to be on their currency. Um, but you you're absolutely right, that Jamaica is one who has said they want to leave. Um, other islands, Caribbean islands have stepped out. Barbados um, stepped out in November 2021. Um, so I think that, you know, this is a turning point for the monarchy and it's also a logical time for these other countries to decide, do we still want to be considered part of the realm when we actually are democratic countries with our own constitutions?
0: In Lebanon, the ongoing economic crisis continues to wreak havoc on people's lives. Three years ago, Lebanon's banks locked out most depositors of their own savings, leaving millions unable to pay for basics like fuel and medicine. And desperate citizens have resorted to robbing banks and filming it to get their own money. Today, Lebanese banks said they would soon announce a three-day closure over their mounting security concerns. Joyce, help us understand what kinds of conditions lead citizens to rob banks to get access to their own
6: money. In general, the situation is uh, truly uh, just very bad. I mean, you have people who have uh, lost everything and who have had uh, enough. Uh, we've seen, you know, with the holdups with the banks, at least uh, five incidents uh, this uh, this week. Uh, people are just resorting to uh, violence uh, to, to get their own savings that they've lost access to after uh, the uh, collapse in uh, 2019. Uh, more broadly, this is yet another indication, Uh, of the state of, um, you know, collapse and a little bit of anarchy in uh, in Lebanon. We're talking financial, economic, uh, security, and safety net uh, collapse in the country. Uh, The one case that was highlighted by the media this week is a woman, Sally Hafiz, who uh, had to get the money out while carrying a toy gun uh, to uh, pay for treatment for her uh, sister, uh, in, in in a hospital in in Turkey uh, so uh, you're saying people are just fed up and uh, they can't afford basic commodities uh, they're ba- they're being ruled by the most corrupt uh, and depraved political elite in in the globe uh, today so uh, this is a very bad situation that could even escalate further if uh, if no IMF loans or no relief is granted soon uh, but Jen I mean striking uh, to me in all of this I mean and I'm biased about this because I am Lebanese, mm-hmm. is this country has so much potential. I mean, just this week, we saw the Lebanese dance group, Mayas, win on America's Got Talent. Uh, so this is not a shortage, uh, you know, in creativity or talent from the people. It's just the political situation, the economic situation that's totally getting out of hand.
0: There's a fuel shortage. Poverty is at a record high. The World Bank has called Lebanon's crisis one of the worst globally. Lebanese citizens are taking every opportunity they have to leave the country. And there's even talk of it being a failed state. If citizens have nothing more to lose, Joyce, what does the near future look like?
6: I mean, they've tried to... to uh, carry an uprising in in 2019, and that failed. They've tried with the ballot box um, uh, this year, and they thought they've elected a better uh, a better group of people to the parliament. But then the old system manages to recycle itself, uh, you know, once uh, once again. So this is not a good situation. You're seeing inside Lebanon a fragmentation uh, of the. State. State. You're seeing people resort to their own uh, security to protect their own homes. And of course, you have a big militia in the country with the name uh, of Hezbollah that's benefiting from all uh, this chaos and offering its own social services and its own uh, safety net protections to its uh, constituents. So, if nothing is done, if the international community does not uh, step up, we are looking at beyond a uh, failed state. It could be, uh, you know, a recipe of instability, a possible return of conflict in, uh, in Lebanon. And James, just
0: explain the implications outside of Lebanon, if this continues.
4: Well, unfortunately, we know that because there was a 15-year civil war in Lebanon that destabilized the whole region. It dragged Israel in, it dragged us in. Um, the Beirut bombing, you can remember, killed 241 U.S. Marines when we try to be peacekeepers there. Uh, That kind of instability is is a a vortex that can drag the whole region in. And and, and Lebanon is suffering from having Syria next door uh, in its civil war and Hezbollah got dragged into that. So um, it's a a tinderbox and uh, it is a failed state. This is what a failed state looks like. It It can't form a government. It can't take care of its own people. People are desperate. This is a failed state and a failing state and um, I agree with Joyce that we need to seriously think in the national community what we can do to bring some stability there because it's it's extremely dangerous.
0: Well, let's turn next to Europe and new signs that a number of countries are moving decidedly to the right. Sweden's Prime Minister Magdalena Andersson resigned on Wednesday. It followed a weekend election that saw growing support for a nationalist movement pushing anti-immigration policies. The leader of the populist Sweden Democrats said it is, quote, time to put Sweden first. Indira, Sweden was long considered perhaps one of Europe's most liberal nations. What changed?
7: You're absolutely right. I mean, Scandinavia and the Nordic countries in general have a reputation for being this um, enclave of incredible progressivism in Europe and socialism, social democracy. So it is surprising. Um, the The party that the prime minister was from got um, more than 30% of the vote. So they're the largest party within the country, but they failed to get a majority. And so this so-called blue block of centre-right um, parties are include these anti-immigration politicians and also really tough on law and order. They want longer prison sentences. Um, You know, there's an absolute rise um, here. And Sweden is not is not the only place where this is happening. I mean, one of these right-wing parties, by the way, has a neo-fascist past, and, um, you know, the so-called Sweden Democrats were founded in 1988 by ultra-nationalist extremists and neo-Nazis, and they've moved in the last decade from the fringes into the mainstream. Um, But this is, you know, concerning to people who look at um, extremist politics in Europe. Don't forget, this is happening at the same time, right ahead of an election in Italy, in which um, the right wing um, candidate is expected to win the election there um, in Italy. And, uh, you know, and with her party, um, with her allies, she's expected to, you know, this is Giorgia Meloni, who I'm I'm talking about, Mm -hmm. who um, runs a party called Brothers of Italy. They're expected to win. um, And she would be in alliance with Silvio Berlusconi and Matteo Salvini, former right, you know, right-wing leaders, um, who, by the way, have been very pro-Putin. So this could be a bolstering to Putin with right-wing parties in Um, Italy, in Sweden. And by the way, in Hungary, Viktor Orban, who has been an ally of Russia, um, also, you know, has passed this um, anti-abortion law. Um, So you see the rise and the strengthening of the right wing there as well.
0: Well, and I want to circle back to uh, Georgia Maloney. She regularly goes after immigrants. Uh, George Soros calls out what she calls woke ideology and cancel culture. Joyce, Italy has had populist leaders before, but how different is Maloney from those who came before?
6: Uh, no, I mean, this would be the first far-right uh, leader since uh, Mussolini. I mean, that's the level we're talking about, even though these words are not uh, used so often and in the coverage, and she is expected uh, to win, but this is consistent, you know, with the right-wing uh, wave we're, uh, we're seeing in Europe. It's, um, I mean, it, it's not just... Um, you know, a political uh, product of of the times. I think that the economic grievances, the uh, increase in crime, uh, uh, the question of assimilation of uh, migrants in in these countries are all playing a a role in this. I mean, the, the Post-pandemic uh, recovery, the rise of inflation—this uh, is all contributing to this wave. But in the case of Maloney too, she's very close to uh, Berlusconi, who was a friend of uh, uh, of Putin. So something else to look into is if if these um, uh, you know parties, right-wing parties, come to power, will this change anything in uh, in Europe's position on uh, on Ukraine? Uh, I mean, uh, so far, France seems to have dodged a uh, bullet with, you know, Marine Le Pen losing uh, that election as far as its position on Russia is concerned. But this is definitely uh, something uh, to watch and to look at these uh, grievances, uh, you know, and how will they shape the future of Europe?
0: James, how are you placing this in in a global context when we, we look at these political shifts, but also concerns about a rise? In authoritarianism globally,
4: well, it's it's very concerning, and we saw this populist wave in two thousand fifteen from all the, the wave of immigration that was generated by the war in Syria and Afghanistan, and how destabilizing that was to democratic societies. Um, this is Putin's game plan. This is this is how he wins. He, he you know, the the number one factor driving this right this right wing wave is the energy prices have spiked enormously because of the cutoff of russian oil and gas and that has affected everyone it's led to hyperinflation throughout europe and uh... And it, a lot of people are feeling very, uh, you know, unstable about the situation of economically for for Europe. And and he is counting. I was at a security forum in Aspen this summer, and one after another, expert from Europe and from the uh, gas and energy sector said, you know, winter is coming, and this is going to be a very tough winter. And this is like music to Putin's ears when he sees these right wing movements come to the fore, take over major countries like Italy and Sweden, and um, he's thinking he can he can. I and mean, That will basically be his get-out-of-jail card in this Ukraine war, that Europe will will lose its, its hunger for supporting Ukraine, and the West will abandon Ukraine.
0: I also want to mention, though, Steve Bannon said this week the election result is, quote, and this is the election result in, in Sweden, is, quote, a political earthquake. So – are there dots to be connected here in the U.S.
4: as well? Well, this is the political earthquake that Steve Bannon has worked for for going on. You know, going back to 2016, he would travel to Europe and talk to these right-wing movements. He wants to see this. He he's you know has his own uh, you know sympathies for Putin and Russia, um, as do many in the far in the far right in this country. So this is part of his project. So yeah, he would say that. On Thursday, officials in Pakistan updated the number of those who died
0: in recent flooding. That number now stands at more than 1,500. Hundreds of thousands of people are still sleeping in the open air after the disaster. In total, 33 million people have been affected after rain swept away homes, vehicles, crops, and livestock. The estimated cost of the damage has been put at $30 billion. Well, we have just a, a little bit of time left here, and I'd love to hear from each of you a story you're following or a story you think hasn't gotten enough attention this week. Joyce, I'll come to you first.
6: Uh, well, I think the case of the uh, woman who just died in Iran, Masha Amini, is a story that should have gotten more attention uh, this week. Uh, she was beaten up by the Iranian uh, morality uh, police for not uh, putting on her hijab properly. Not for not wearing her hijab. She was covered, but she wasn't wearing it properly. The beatings came on the head, and uh, we're learning from Iranian media that she uh, passed away in a hospital. Uh, this morning, I think this just exposes once again the challenges that the Iranian uh, women uh, uh, face and that deserve more, uh, more attention uh, from all of us. Indira, what about you?
7: Well, the absolute tragedy that we've seen in Pakistan um, with the floods, I think more attention should be paid to how this is just the latest in a string of weather extremes that are influenced by climate change. And this growing field of uh, attribution science is really helping scientists draw direct scientific parallels between drought, for example, flash floods, heat waves, um, and climate change. And I think we need to pay much more attention to that. What we're seeing in Pakistan is the future, unfortunately. James, I'll give you the
0: last word here.
4: R- really quickly, immigration. We have a broken immigration system. We've seen that uh, play out this week. Um, our government has not for 15 years been able to fix this. It needs to find a way to fix our immigration system.
0: A final note, one of cinema's most notable filmmakers died this week. French-Swiss director Jean-Luc Godard pioneered French new-wave cinema in the 50s and 60s. Here's a clip from his interview on The Dick Cavett Show in 1980 and why he cared so much about his work and the movie business.
5: I feel responsible of, of what I see, and the best way to to answer to this responsibility is to go on t- to making movie. So uh, I'm at least sure I will receive the right movie for me to see. or If I don't, I will be responsible for it because I've made it.
0: Many people perhaps know the name, but not the man. Indira, what can you tell us about his influence on contemporary film or modern culture?
7: Well, I mean, he was the father of new wave cinema and so many of his films I would point to Breathless um, from 1960 as sort of the one that set off that movement. Um, it's about um, an, a French uh, sort of remorseless criminal and his American lover and shows them throughout the day in Paris, you know, that's a, that, that, sto- that film um, set the stage for so many others. A personal favorite of mine, because I love the Rolling Stones, is Sympathy for the Devil, a movie he did in 1968. Um, and yeah, I think that, um, that, that it's, uh, you know, his influence has been incredible on film and, um... Yeah, he he really shaped the French new wave and taught so many directors who came after him how to watch cinema and how to make it in a completely new way. James, I saw you nodding along. Anything to add?
4: I was just going to say, and I must claim ignorance on most of his films, but I also, being a Rolling Stones fan, saw Sympathy for the Devil and learned in reading his obituary that he actually didn't even want that one to be released because it wasn't up to what he felt his standards. But I thought it was a pretty good movie.
0: That's James Kitfield. James is a senior fellow at the Center for the Study of the Presidency and Congress. He's also author of In the Company of Heroes, the inspiring stories of Medal of Honor recipients from America's longest wars in Afghanistan and Iraq. Also with us, Indira Lakshmanan, senior executive editor at NetGeo, and Joyce Karam, senior correspondent with The National. Thanks to you all. Aileen Humphreys is the producer of 1A On Demand. Paige Osborne is our managing producer. Maya Garg is our senior producer. Mike Kidd. It is our sound designer and engineer. Chris Costano, is our digital editor, and Barb Angiano produces our podcast. This program comes to you from WAMU, part of American University in Washington, distributed by NPR. I'm Jen White. Thanks for listening. Have a great weekend. We'll talk more soon. This is 1A.